don't just like put your head in the sound and say, everything's going to be great. We don't need to worry about scenario C. You should always have in the back of your mind that little goblin that's saying, hey, I'm here to crush you and drive this thing into the wall. And you got to swat it away and be like, no, I have a plan to get out of there into scenario A and B. Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, the Director of Marketing at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have Matt Cohen, the founder and managing partner of Ripple Ventures, an early stage venture capital fund based in Toronto, Canada, seeking new investments in various industries ripe for disruption. We cover a lot in this episode. Let's dive in. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Justin. Really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you. There's so much going on, it seems like, at Ripple. From like the research, there's many different facets. So I want to set the stage with that first. What is all involved at Ripple? Because I started looking at this and I was like, wait, they have this going on, they have this going on. For people who don't know Ripple, like, what are all the facets of Ripple? Uh, basically, we're a fund that just doesn't sleep. Uh, at least that's what <laughs> I tell my wife. But no, I mean, to think about Ripple uh, is a way to think about sort of the differentiation between just like capital uh, and then that value add you hear from you know, a lot of VC funds, we get into like how the sausage is made and do it very transparently. So, you know, when I started the fund in 2018, I had already spent, you know, over a decade working in public markets and capital markets, had a lot of exposure to sort of the, the public realm of how businesses were being viewed and operated, but never really understood the early stage side of it until I actually started a company with two friends of mine back in 2012. And so through that journey of bootstrapping a business, begging and boring and trying to get our way to profitability, which is a crazy thing, I learned the hard way of how to pitch 300 investors and get told no, and then still go through the journey of having a successful exit and selling a company to Yelp and you know, seeing that you know, become what it was, uh, taught me a lot about how to build businesses from the ground up. Uh, and so when, we, when I started Ripple, I really went out with this mindset of like, I don't care if anyone else doesn't believe in this founder. I think I believe in this founder and I don't need anyone else to do the work with me. So we're going to roll up our sleeves. We're going to create the infrastructure. We're going to create the templates and the guardrails to help them get out of that death valley, which so many startups fail in. You know, the, the percentages of companies going from, you know, first funding at the pre-seed round and getting it to a series A are like, you know, 90% fail. So we wanted to be able to say, hey, we think we have a way to get through that death valley. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be like turnkey, but we can put up the guardrails to get you through that more successfully. And I think we've, we've proven that with our first two funds. And, and so that's sort of the way we think about it. And to summarize, it's like Ripple Ventures is the preeminent early stage venture fund that is trying to build and back enduring and resilient companies. And resilient is the key word there because in this time period, right where we are today, resiliency is the only thing that matters and will keep you alive. So that's the way I like to summarize it for people. Let's unpack the resiliency side of things. What does that mean for companies? Founders, founders are going to hear that. Like, what do you mean by resilient exactly in this context? I mean, first and foremost, it's like, don't take no for an answer. Number one. Number two, it's like, do the actual work yourself and don't actually pay other people to do the job you should be doing as a founder. So what does that mean? It's founder-led sales. It's founder-led fundraising. It's founder-led hiring. It's founder-led you know, uh, product building. It's all of that at the early stage. Because at the end of the day, what I tell founders, like, you really don't have a lot of risk here, unless you're bootstrapping the business and you've mortgaged your house or something. But really, it's us as the VC fund who's taken on the majority of the risk. For you, yes, it's your, your company, but you could probably go get another job somewhere. You know, you left probably a job to go build this and take a chance. So all you're risking 
is the fact that this just won't work out and you can go back to maybe a, an accounting or a consulting job if this doesn't. For us, it's like a big chunk of our fun, a lot of our time. It's the only asset, you know, technically that we have that can work. We're not invested in the public markets or diversified in real estate. It's, it's all about you. So we're putting all of our eggs in your basket and trying to get you to succeed. And so resiliency is really saying, hey, how am I going to actually take all of the, the, the noise and the signals that I'm getting from the market and try to hone on on something that's going to create value for a lot of the, uh, the hopeful customers that I eventually want to sell to when I have product solution and then eventually product market fit. Um, so when we started Ripple, um, you know, our podcast is called Tank Talks. And the reason why it's called that is because we had an incubator space called The Tank, which we can get into. But really, that was an incubator space that I started at the beginning of Fund One in 2018, 2019. We had 50 desks and 50 chairs. I built every single one myself. Uh, and I brought our portfolio companies in to work alongside us day to day. And why we did that by taking on the real estate risk and all the overhead costs associated with it was... We wanted to be working alongside founders, rolling up our sleeves and say, hey, you got a problem? Let's not wait for the monthly update or the quarterly board meeting to do it. Let's talk about it right now. Let's get into a room and we can help do this with you as an extension of like your founding or management team. So that's sort of where the whole hands-on approach started with, was physically working in the same location with our companies. Okay. When you started the fund, do you knew that, know that right away that was going to be what you want to do? I know you... You're very hands-on. You mentioned, I, think, I didn't say this, but I saw in, re, in the research, you like to lead rounds. You like to take board seats in like 70% of the companies or something like that. And so when you started this, knowing you're going to start Ripple, you're going to have a physical space with founders, which is not the norm ever. Just take me, take me back behind that decision and be like, yeah, we're going to have a physical space. You tell your LPs like, yeah, there's some capital is going towards a physical space for these founders. The same, either more of that, because I like seeing the difference in uh, structure and like strategy for VCs. So I'm curious about that decision. You know, it was definitely a hard sell to our LPs, but like I, you know, I told a lot of people, it was my own fucking money in fund one. Yeah. Like I put a lot of my own money into this fund. Uh, the GP commit was like one third of the total capital committed. So it was, it was a meaningful skin in the game sort of conversation. We had already had two portfolio companies rolled into the fund that were my angel companies that I you know, put as my LP commitment, which were serious like LP commitments that I rolled in at cost. So there was a lot of like alignment with our LPs. And when it came to sort of this you know, incubator space, you know, it came around because we said, you know, there's all of these early stage funds out there giving capital and saying that they're value add, but how many of them are really there day to day? And so what we decided to do is, hey, let's bring this company and these companies together alongside us, and then build a team of support around them, like a fractional CFO, a PR and marketing coach, a CEO coach, a Salesforce implementation partner, people I knew through the ecosystem that could meet in a physical place before the pandemic and be like, hey, I'm going to spend an hour with you. It's not going to cost you anything. I'm here because I'm a friend of Ripple's. But I think like we could actually get some real work done. And that to us was the only way where we could actually see things being created and valued. And then the the ripple effect that happened was just companies were bouncing off each other, right? Companies who were succeeding were sharing those you know, tidbits with the companies that were a little slower to grow. The companies that were struggling were watching the companies succeeding, be like, I want to sit down with that founder right now over lunch and talk about it. And then the tank talks happened because we started having people in the city of Toronto coming into the physical office space, giving talks on community and growth and hiring and firing and all that stuff. Okay, wait a minute. You mentioned physical office space in person. Obviously, the world has shifted a bit. How has that shifted your whole thoughts on this mentality behind that? I'm curious. 
I mean, geez, I think first <laughs> off, like nowhere did I ever think I would be caught into a massive 5,000 square foot lease with nobody sitting in it for like months on months. And oh. fortunately, you know, after s- several months of stressing out, because, uh, you know, the buck stopped with us in terms of the cost with the landlord, we yeah. were able to actually find someone, our next door neighbor was a friend of mine in the building to take over our lease, which we had like three and a half years left on. So it was a, a tough process, but we got out of it, you know, uh, no real battle scars, uh, and we moved into a virtual world. Now, the great thing about how we set up the uh, physical office was that we built a lot of infrastructure around communication and async communication, uh, and then templates around supporting founders. So when we went to uh, you know, into COVID and how we had to be remote, we were really well set up. We had our entire portfolio companies and their employees in our Slack channel called The Tank. We had all these like uh, monthly check-ins, bi-weekly check-ins with founders. We had these onboarding um, programs for our early stage companies. We had these like, you know, events that we were just transferring into the remote world. We didn't really have to play catch up a lot. Um, and we had the podcast. And so there was just a lot of uh, async communication really built into our our framework already so that we were ready to go when everything was shut down. So it really wasn't that big of a transition for us. Even our LP meetings, we had started transitioning to an LP Zoom meeting instead of in person because we had so many LPs that were outside of Toronto, outside of Canada. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't too big of a heavy lift for us. The hardest thing was just making investments uh, for companies we had met before. But luckily, we had made a few before the pandemic where we hadn't met the founders in person. So the transition also wasn't that hard for us. Yeah, you had a taste of that at least beforehand, which was nice. I'm curious too, you mentioned obviously all the things you do to help founders. You have the in-person space before, it's evolved since then. But I think you had tweeted out recently that you gave a talk on like founder mental health. I'm curious on how you approach that from the VC perspective in terms of helping your founders, giving them the resources, directing them to people, what you tell them, because obviously you're working hand in hand with them on that whole topic, because it's such an important topic. I'm just curious on your thoughts on that too. Yeah. I mean, this is a real sensitive topic for me. You know, I always get a little teary eyed when I think about it because I've seen founders that I work with closely, like just totally shut off and, and close down without any signs. And we should have seen the signs. We should have seen that they stopped giving monthly updates or stopped talking to some of their you know, employees openly or even their investors. Uh, and so for me, when it comes to supporting founders with mental health, it's really about explaining them, number one, we're already investors in the business. And we're sitting now, instead of across the table from you, on the same side of the table as you. So we're totally aligned. And then the second thing that I always make sure people understand is it starts with empathy. It starts with understanding the situation these founders are going through, not just in their professional lives, but in their personal lives, whether something's going on with their partners, their family, somebody's sick, there's a stress that's coming from with outside the organization that you're just probably not uh, being mindful to. And most investors just don't give a shit. It's like, it's not my problem that you have you know relationship problems or something else going on in your family at home. It kind of is though your problem is what I tell them because founder flight is the biggest risk at the early stage companies. You know, at the series A, B, C or something, there's infrastructure, there's a team, there's plug and play, a lot of things on the on the operating side. But at the early stage, it's it's all people, it's all founders, it's all early management team members and things like that. So you need to care about founders' mental health. And so what I say to a lot of people is let's not jump at every single bad sign in the company's operating business or lack of communication. And let's peel back the onion and try to get to a point where we understand why they're so um, bad at certain things. So when I notice founders are slacking on their monthly updates or just their you know, async communication with us, I don't just like jump at them and say, where the hell is this update? Or why are you so bad at telling me what's going on with this partnership agreement? 
what I do is I send a, a text message or I jump on a phone call and I'm like, hey, do you have time for a coffee or a beer or dinner? Let's just go talk about, you know, family and life. And then naturally the conversation comes up like, you know, I got to ask, like, I've noticed that you're slacking a little bit on these things. Is something going on? And they say, yeah, you know what? I just don't really understand this. Or I'm feeling like, you know, imposter syndrome towards some of these things that we've been promising our customers and we're just really slow at getting it out. Or the worst is I'm having problems with my co-founder and I don't know how to deal with it. And so we need to get to those kind of like real transparent conversations and authentic conversations with our founder early on, because it's going to eventually, you know, blow up in your face when it really matters, like at a series A fundraising round. Um, and so that's where it's sort of come from. Yeah. There's so much to go through with that. And that's such a huge part of obviously the relationship between founders and investors and working with them as you go through these challenges that are inevitably going to come up in some capacity in some way, shape or form. I want to switch gears a little bit in terms of talking about the market. So markets have been shit. Let's just say that much. Uh, what, what, with that in mind, what are you seeing in the market? How has that changed how you operate, if at all, what you, how you advise found, founders? Because everyone has a little different take. I'm curious, Matt, what's your take on that? Yeah, look, I grew up in the public markets. You know, I saw, you know, down in New York, working on Wall Street, the whole Lehman debacle and, you know, managing, uh, you know, a public business trading stocks uh, for the bank uh, during 2007, 8, 9. Um, you know, I saw what happened in the real estate market and, uh, you know, that time period as well. And so I come from a bit more of like a private equity mindset around capital efficiency about like, you know, uh, kind of thinking about building businesses the right way with the right infrastructure, like you're building a house. And so in these markets right now, we've been saying the same message to our um, investors and our founders at the same time. It's, you know, build consistent, repeatable, uh, you know, skills, build a uh, aggressive you know, top of funnel, but know that a lot of it is not going to flow through to the bottom line. And so never give up on trying to keep continue to fit, uh, fill the funnel. Uh, never think that your team is the best team you have. If you have underperformers, you need to get rid of them. I'm sorry, but it's just the way it is. Even Jack Welch says it, you know, get rid of the bottom 20% of your company every year. Um, and so, you know, we are in a time period right now where we're going back to below the line type of investment modeling, which is not just focusing on top line revenue, but thinking about, God forbid I say EBITDA or profitability, you know, not that we're saying our company companies are profitable, but we say to them like, look, eventually you're going to be judged on the rule of 40. Eventually you're going to be judged on gross margin. So start thinking about those muscle skills right now. So when we go into a board meeting, we ask them to start trying to track a lot of those things at the, even the pre-seed seed stage, like your gross margin, your rule of 40, your net revenue retention, your customer acquisition cost, your capital efficiency, uh, just so they understand when it actually comes to meeting like great investors at the Series A stage, they understand what they're asking for. And they're not caught off guard when someone says, what do you mean your net revenue retention isn't over 100%? Um, you should know about that even early on. And so we've been saying that message consistently. And then the other thing we are trying to get our companies to do consistently also is modeling out scenario A, B, and C. Uh, a, obviously top growth, hitting all the metrics, B, you know, medium growth, hitting some of the metrics, but falling up short on some. And then C is like default to live scenario. Um, how do you get, you know, out of that and into the other ones? And so we're always trying to say like, don't just like put your head in the sound and say, everything's going to be great. We don't need to worry about scenario C. You should always have in the back of your mind, that little goblin that's saying, Hey, I'm here to crush you and drive this thing into the wall. And you got to swat it away and be like, no, I have a plan to get out of there into scenario A and B. Has it changed at all with your LPs, relationships, like conversations with them around any decisions you're making as a GP with the markets? 
you know what? We've been so transparent with our LPs since day one, you know, investing now out of our third fund. We've had LPs from fund one, two, and three now all been with us since the beginning. And so they've appreciated our level of transparency and authenticity. Our reporting has always been focused on like not over marking our book, only taking, you know, third party priced equity rounds into our valuations. Uh, and, you know, we, we just sold a business today. Uh, on-call health to Qualfax. And, you know, that was a great return for us. We wrote out an entire, you know, information on exactly how the transaction came together, what it looks like, the DPI, shall I say, that we're going to be paying back to our investors um, and all the other things implied that just a lot of investors just don't care to share or just don't think about sharing. I'm an LP myself through my own family office, Ripple Capital, and half a dozen other early stage venture funds to support other emerging managers. And it's a little shocking to see the lack of transparency you get in some of their company reportings and portfolio reporting. So I try to go over and above. And sometimes investors say that's too much. <laughs> uh, and most of the time, though, it's like you're right on the mark. This is the best reporting I've seen. So thank you for sharing so much. I want to get into both those things you just mentioned, the fellowship and the family office in a second. But I want to go back to one thing with your fund strategy. So you mentioned investing in a fund three starting in 2018. What's your strategy in terms of deployment period? How you're looking at that? Because it seems pretty quick. Yeah, well, I mean, our funds were small, right? So our first two funds were $10 million each. And so we were deploying capital in sort of a uh, kind of a two-year time frame between each one from beginning to end. Um, I'd say we're also very first check heavy uh, when it comes to deploying capital. That worked really well for us because some of the other early stage funds that were writing, let's say, 20% of their allocation, saving 80% of their allocation for the total investment in the portfolio for reserves, they were being forced to writing follow-on checks at very high valuations when someone would come in and leave the Series A. And it would just drag your average you know, entry price up too high to be a, almost a Series B average you know, venture fund. So we for, uh, were very fortunate to see our average entry price into companies be quite low because we were very first check heavy, which means like 70-30. And then from a follow-on investments post-Series A, we would just give our pro rata to our LPs, which they loved as well. Uh, so that worked really well for us, which I think a lot of funds have now realized like that's probably the better way to do it. So you don't pay up for less ownership, essentially. Yeah. Um, you know, for us, though, now investing out of our third fund, we've kind of gone back into like the early pre-seed, uh, seed and seed plus stage, writing 250 to you know $2 million checks. Um, we run a concentrated portfolio. and It's because we roll up our sleeves and like to be involved with all of our companies. But that being said, we also have this Ripple Fellowship Program. Uh, that we've been running for uh, almost four years now uh, to be able to support underrepresented uh, founders and future funders, essentially students uh, in university programs across Canada, the US, and now globally, to be able to train them to think about how to run a successful startup company or to be a early stage or, or, or venture capital investor one day. And it's generating a ton of great uh, you know, ripple effects for us. It's seeing great you know, students come out and get jobs at top tier venture funds, creating a, a great network for us to, to rely on. We're recruiting ourselves from the program to find the best analysts and eventually associates. So all of our analysts and associates have come from the fellowship program. And then lastly, the startups that are coming out of it, these students are coming out with great ideas, great network, uh, you know, over a thousand students they now have been able to interact with across all the cohorts and they're building real companies. We see students building you know, companies in the Web3 space and the DevTool space in traditional consumer B2C, B2B space. And so we've seen over $50 million raised collectively from the companies that have spun out of the program. 
Uh, and so now we've created a fellow fund um, within uh, Ripple Fund 3 that we're going to invest in these students with 2550K US uh, investments uh, on a standard like YC Safe Note to get them started, get them building. And then what we also do is bring our founders from our existing Ripple portfolio in as co-investors <laughs> with smaller checks, 5,000, 10,000, make them their own you know, angel investor network. But they also have skin in the game to want to help these really early pre-seed founders. Um, and that's super cool. The ripple effect of seeing all of that happening with like a Series A, Series B ripple founder giving back to a very early stage founder. Be like, I was in your shoes two years ago. This is exactly how I dealt with it. Uh, and by the way, make sure my $10,000 turns into a million. <laughs> no pressure. Uh, I no want to about that a little bit. How did that come about in terms of how that start this, uh, this whole fellowship program? So it started by my partner, Dominic Lau. He's the brains behind it. You know, I was just supporting him and pushing him along to keep going with it uh, in the beginning. I went to a, a university in the East Coast of Canada, Dalhousie, where we had co-op programs and internships between our second and third year of business school. My partner, Dom, also went to an internship program at the University of Waterloo. We came together and said, look, there's all these scout programs out there, which are really focused on deal flow uh, and not too much tangible support and like textbook knowledge on how to actually think about you know, startup building or investing. And so we said, let's make a program where it's fully give first, no expectations, but just give people access to this information and this playbook that we've been sort of building ourselves. And maybe something will come out of it. That's how it started. And it started at Canada, across some of the universities here in Ontario, and eventually the rest of the country. And then we started seeing people telling their friends at universities like MIT and Harvard and Drexel and University of Louisville and Kentucky and all these places being like, hey, I just did this program called the Ripple X Fellowship. It's amazing. Oh, by the way, I'm an arts major, and now I know a lot about venture capital and startups. Like, there is no uh, pre bias to like people in business school or people in computer science. It was like open to anyone as long as they were willing to put the time and the effort in to join the program and contribute. And so we've now run 12 plus cohorts. We've got, like I said, you know, thousand students in the community. Uh, it's a fully online remote program. So when we switched to COVID, it was an easy transition to us. There's nice. video based, there's text based, there's project based. People are finding their co-founders in it. So that was amazing to just see all of that happening. But then what really happened was in fund two, some of these founders were coming back to us after they graduated and said, hey, remember that startup I had uh, came to about you know potentially building? Well, it's actually working now. And I just got six term sheets to lead my seed round and I have no idea what to do. Can you guys help me? And so we were talking and we said, well, why don't we just lead the round? You know, we're the ones who were the ones helping you in the beginning. We know you really well and we have a venture fund. So why don't we invest? And so, you know, we invested in some of those companies from the fund like Lula. Um, and then eventually uh, we started seeing other companies getting amazing traction like Utopia Labs uh, started by Kaido Cunningham, which is a Web3 uh, platform to help payments and infrastructure for, for DAOs and, and Web3 infrastructure companies. And they end up raising $25 million from Coinbase and Paradigm uh, and Kindred Ventures and a bunch of other big firms. We're like, damn, we missed out on that one too. <laughs> so we decided that we were going to actually put aside a, a pool of capital to invest alongside or to be the first investor so that because we had first dibs on these companies anyways, and it made yep. sense for us to be there supporting them. So now they get onboarded like a traditional Ripple company into our Slack channel through our onboarding process, get part of our... Uh, entire portfolio perks package, which has 25, you know, discounts for all your, you know, uh, tech services and things like that. Um, and so they love it. And then they graduate hopefully into a, a core position in the portfolio one day, which is a great thing to do as well. So it started out as a really give first approach, helping underrepresented 
uh, students, mostly uh, you know female and people of color. We have 90% BIPOC representation, 50-50 male female representation. Uh, it's really focused on that initiative. And you know, kids come to us and say, like, I knew nothing about venture capital. I didn't have a you know, family member in private equity. I didn't know anything about banking. I came from a pharmacy background, and now I'm thinking about starting my own tech company because of you guys, which is really cool. That is quite the initiative. Uh, I'm sure we could talk about that for a very long time. <laughs> I know we're almost out of time here. Uh, one thing I'm curious about, you mentioned that uh, there just for a second, but you mentioned Web3 infrastructure. Obviously, we've seen the kind of evolution of Web3 in the last number of months. How do you think about that still, future of Web3, uh, what needs to be done in that? Because you're obviously looking at that intently. I'm curious about that too. Yeah. So look, I mean, we've always had a thesis around uh, workflow automation system and developer tools. In fact, some of our Web2 focused companies have already had some of their products been utilized by Web3 uh, and DAO you know, uh, programs and platforms. So We've got companies like Zenhub in the project management space, you know, crossing both sides of Web2, Web3, Buildable, you know, an, an events and messaging platform for your uh, database and infrastructure systems already being used by Web3 companies and for accepting payments and stuff with crypto. So we've already had sort of some of our companies dip their toes into that. But we wrote a thesis on our Web3 thesis, which we do for a lot of our uh, enterprise focus areas. So we take a ton of time to think about where we want to invest collect a bunch of that information into our research database, and then write a blog post and share it publicly. So we've done it on Web3, we've done it on DevTools, we've done it on employee lifecycle orchestration, and you name it, uh, and DEI as well. So for, for Web3, you know, the way we look at it is we don't do anything. It's easier to tell you what we don't do. No DeFi, <laughs> no tokens, um, yeah. you know, no NFTs, any of that. What we're really trying to focus on is platforms that enable anyone to be able to spin up a Web3 enabled service. Um, so you think about like a Twilio, for example, in Web2, how do you create something like that in the Web3 world? Um, think about anything related to simplifying the onboarding into a Web3 ecosystem that is you know, universal and could be even white labeled um, across many different shops, like a Shopify program. So we're trying to take a little bit of what has been successful in Web2 and also being able to scale at way more efficient cost structure yeah. into Web3, which is what everyone's really trying to get to. What I, what I try to tell our team all the time is let's not just try and find a problem because it is a Web3 solution, which we've already heard a lot of people talk about is a lot of crypto has always been trying to find the problem after they built the solution. And yeah. it's totally <laughs> got to be the other way. And we're a believer in that as well. I love that. And then one last thing is I know we're almost out of time here. So the family office you mentioned looking for kind of these emerging managers and we've talked, had a number of emerging managers on the show, actually, what are you looking for out of that in terms of emerging managers? Why the, that involvement into them as well as the venture fund? I'm curious about that. Yeah. So what happened, you know, during the pandemic was we were all sitting at home doing, you know, shit all basically. And I was getting a lot of people reaching out while I was still doing my own investing and fundraising, asking me, Hey, would love to get on a call and hear about your experience being an emerging manager. I'm like, my experience, I'm still experiencing it. I don't even it. know I'm in it. If that's what you want to tell you. But then they said, you know, I'd really love to have you as a part of the fund. And uh, it would be great if you can like support in any way. And because my fund has always been B2B enterprise SaaS focus, anytime a friend of mine has always come to me and asked me to invest in a startup, I can't do it from the fund. So I had to create, you know, a vehicle, which is, you know, Ripple Capital. Uh, to be able to invest in it. So I've done investments in everything from you know crypto to cannabis and other things that I'm excited about personally, but I would never let go into the fund. And yeah. so I was already doing angel investments. And so I looked at LP commitments as just an extension of that. Um, and so I had given capital to 
you know, uh, Austin Reef from Reef Ventures, uh, the team at Bungalow Capital, uh, you know, David Ambrosi and Matt Ziski, um, the Pioneer uh, Fund, the YC Group, uh, you know, alumni group invested there, uh, Kirby at Ascend Ventures. I was trying to find people who are like me, building their funds from the very ground up, had a very, you know, interesting approach and outlook to venture capital. Uh, and that also could be a great co-investor network and potentially, you know, follow on investor network for me. If I saw one of their companies break out and I wanted to write a check into a series A, series B company, personally, this would be a great way to see a, a tremendous amount of deal flow. So I've really enjoyed uh, being an LP. I will, you know, in full transparency and say I've had to pull back given the markets and obviously my, a lot of my capital and time has been committed to uh, Ripple Ventures. So right now I'm not writing any LP checks until probably next year when hopefully we have some liquidity, but I'm always yeah. open to talking with emerging managers, sharing my experience and guidance and hopefully, you know, teaching them some lessons along the way. Uh, but capital is one of those things that I just really wanted to support them with as well. As I always say, put your money where your mouth is if you can afford to. Absolutely. Matt, this has been great. Where's the best place for people to find you online if they'd like to? Yeah, all on Twitter, Matty B. Cohen, uh, obviously on LinkedIn. Uh, you can go to our website, rippleventures.com, and you can check out our own podcast at uh, substack.tanktalks.com. Awesome. Matt, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Justin. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at vitalizevc, or you can follow me on Twitter at justingordon212. Have a great day and I'll talk to you in the next episode.